Good morning, Seven Mile Waltham. Uh, listen, I miss you guys so much, and Pastor Clint and I are praying for you. And man, we wish that we could do this in person. And let me just tell you, one of the things I miss the most about gathering is the singing. I know you guys are singing some great gospel truths in your home liturgy um, as you watch this video, but there's just nothing like the saints coming together and singing the truths of who God is and what He has done for us. So I long for the day when we can come together and sing those truths again. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want you to think of your life. I want you to imagine your life as a tree. Okay, Think about your life as a tree. Now, a, a tree has three key parts, right? It has the roots, which are below the surface. Uh, then you have the, the trunk and the branches. And then on those branches, if it's a healthy tree, you have the, the leaves and the fruit. Now, the roots are unseen. They're below the surface, but they're vitally important, right? Roots that are grounded in rich, uh, nourish, nourished soil will uh, produce a strong and healthy trunk and branches, and those branches will in turn do what? They'll produce healthy leaves and healthy fruit. And as we, as we look at Philippians chapter 2 today, and as we, as we look at our own lives, uh, we'll see that this is this is what should describe us as Christians. Maybe you were with us last week and you remember Pastor Clint teaching on chapter 1, the end of chapter 1. And in, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells us to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What he's saying there is live in such a way that brings honor to the gospel and pleases God. And so what's happening now as we start chapter 2 is Paul is digging deeper into these practical details of what that actually looks like. What does it look like to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? He's telling us what kind of fruit our lives as Christians should bear. And that fruit uh, can be summed up with one word, and that word is humility. That's what God's word is calling us to. But what's so encouraging about this passage is Paul doesn't just tell us to live humbly. He doesn't just tell us the fruit that we're supposed to bear. He also tells us where we are to be rooted so that we can bear such fruit. The rich soil of Christ himself is where we are to root our lives. And so we, we don't find the source of humility within ourselves. Like a tree, we need to be rooted in the humbled, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Savior. And when that happens, our lives will bear fruit, bear the fruit of humility for the good of others and for the glory of Jesus. So let's read our passage for this morning and jump in. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we walk through this passage this morning, we want to do this in in three parts. First, we're going to see the fruit of humility in verses 1 through 4. Then second, we're going to see the root of Christ in verses 6 through 8. And third and finally, we're going to see the result of exaltation in verses 9 through 11. So first we see in this passage the fruit of humility. Look again at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is if you're in Christ and if you're filled with the Spirit, you have been a recipient of the blessing of knowing God, then here's what should mark your life as a believer. Here's the fruit that you should bear. Then he goes on in verses 2 to 4 to explain to us what humility actually looks like. And he, he does this in, by describing three fruits, if you will. And so let's look at these briefly. Verse, verse 2, he, he describes the fruit of humility. The first fruit of, of humility is oneness. Oneness. Verse 2 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So here, Paul is continuing this theme from the previous passage, right? If you were with us last week, maybe you remember in chapter 1, verse 27, we're told that God's people are to be of one spirit, of one mind, and we're to strive side by side together for the sake of the gospel. Now, the church at Philippi was a a healthy church. Some of the other churches that Paul's writing to in the New Testament had some serious, serious problems, whether doctrinal problems or moral problems problems, but the church at Philippi is relatively healthy, but there seems to be, in the firmness of Paul's uh, exhortation here, there seems to be some sort of disagreement going on. In fact, uh, we know that's the case because later on in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul calls out two people by name who are disagreeing. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, they got called out by name by the Apostle Paul. That's, that's kind, of, kind of rough, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Because anytime you get a group of sinners together and they're living life together, no matter what happens, no matter how healthy the church is, we're sinners and there's going to be some kind of relational strife that surfaces. And here's what Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi and us too. He's saying when that takes place, we should be quick to reconcile. We should be quick to come together and maintain a oneness and unity for the purposes of God and the gospel. Paul's telling us that the people of God should be marked by a supernatural unity and oneness. Why? Because we, as Christians, we actually don't have competing desires. Our desire is to love and glorify Christ and to help others do the same. So we're to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. And this is the beauty of the church, if you think about it, right? Our organizing principle is not uh, our hobbies. 
It's not our ethnicity. It's not our bank account. It's not our skills or careers or our age or our sex. Our organizing principle, what we're unified around, is our collective need for the grace of God and our collective desire and pursuit of His glory. So Paul is calling us. He's saying this, the first mark of humility is oneness, a pursuit of unity. Then he goes on in verse 3 to say the second mark, the second fruit of humility is lowliness. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Listen, the greatest threat to humility and oneness is our own selfish ambition. And Paul knows that each one of us has this tendency in our sinful hearts and we're prone to advance our own agenda and put ourselves before God and before the good of others. This is the underlying sin beneath all of our sins, a desire to exalt ourself above God. If you think about it, we see this all throughout the Bible. Right? This is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden and they gave in. It's the, the sin beneath our unrighteous anger toward others. It's the sin beneath our refusal to trust God in difficult situations. It's the sin beneath our propensity to sort of shrug our shoulders at the, at the law of God. It's the sin beneath our sin, the, the tendency to find fault in others while we have a hard time being honest about our own faults. Right? All of these things are rooted in selfish ambition, and vain conceit. Sam Storms comments on this. He says, if you would take the time to excavate your sin, beneath it all, you would discover the rotting bones of pride and arrogance. And to this, God says, you need to make yourself low. You need to consider others more significant than yourself. Don't have an exaggerated view of yourself, but instead recognize the due importance of those around you. And this then leads us to the, the third fruit of humility in verse 4, helpfulness. So we've seen oneness, we've seen lowliness, and now we see helpfulness. Verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, when you count yourself as lowly and you see others as more significant than yourself, you're going to be freed from the weight and drain of pride so that you can lovingly and practically serve the needs of those around you. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. Tim Keller sort of sums all of this up with this wonderful explanation of gospel humility. He says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. That's what Christ is calling us to, to self-forgetfulness that pursues unity, that lives lowly and humbly before others and seeks to be helpful to those around us. Now, that's what it is. That's the fruit, right? But how do we do that? And that leads us to number two, the root of Christ. Verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let me just stop here and say, friends, that I believe that in this verse, as in many other verses in the New Testament, 
are the two greatest words in the New Testament. In Christ. If you're like me, you hear this call to be humble, and you think, man, how am I going to do that? I can barely go a minute without thinking of myself. Even as I'm filming this video, I'm wondering, how, how am I coming across? Or how do I look? Or do, I, do I seem smart? Right? Do, do I seem like I know what I'm talking about? I, I, we're just so prone to self-exaltation. So how in the world are we going to do this? And God answers us with this beautiful doctrine of our union with Christ. Like a tree that's planted by streams of water, Psalm 1, that yields its fruit in due season, so the Christian finds in Christ a reservoir of resources to live humbly before others and for His glory. So, so what that little phrase means, in Christ, it means this is so important. What God demands from us in life, God provides for us in Christ. So this humility that God calls us to, He also provides for us in Jesus. And what follows from Paul is this glorious poem of the early church, sometimes called the Hymn of Christ, that beautifully describes the humble work of Jesus. And, and here, in these next few verses, we see that Christ in His humility is both our Savior, as He humbled Himself, and then our example of how to walk in humility. So how did Christ come to us? And in verses 6 through 8 explain this to us in this poetic way in a, in a descending way. It explains the descending humility of Christ from glory to death. And verse 6 tells us that he came not grasping. It says though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now to say that Jesus was in the form of God is to say that Jesus was and is God. As the author of Hebrews puts it, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1.3 So Jesus has always been and will always be God. So what Paul is doing is he's going back before Christ came to earth and he's showing us the glory of Christ's dwelling place before He came to save sinners like you and me. He dwelt in heavenly splendor, receiving the glory due to His name. But He didn't cling to those things. He didn't grasp, grasp those privileges. Instead, verse 7 tells us that He came empty-handed. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, there's an important question. What did Jesus empty himself of? It's, it's important to point out that it, it wasn't his divinity. He didn't empty himself of his godness. He didn't cease to be God. What he did was he surrendered his rights and prerogatives as the exalted Christ, and he took on human nature in addition to his divine nature to come for sinners like you and me. This is what we call the incarnation. God in the flesh come to save rebels. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And friends, we need to consider just how shocking this is. Which one of us would lay down all of our wealth to become poor by choice? 
Which one of us would take the most exalted status we can imagine and willingly give that up and stoop down to serve those who are going to scorn and reject you? If this is what Christ did for us, this was his humility. And William Hendrickson comments on this. He says, so poor was he that he was constantly borrowing a place for his birth and what a place, a house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and finally a tomb to be buried in. From the infinite sweep of eternal delight in the very presence of his Father, he willingly descended into this realm of misery. He before whom the seraphim covered their faces, the object of most solemn adoration, voluntarily descended to the realm where he was, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. See, Jesus came not grasping, but empty-handed. And we think, man, is it possible for the glorious Christ to stoop any lower than that? And Paul goes on in verse 8 to tell us, yes, it is. Because not only did he come not grasping and empty-handed, he came to die. Verse 8 says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God-man, Jesus Christ, did what we could not do. He came, lived perfectly, obeyed God, walked humbly his entire life, and that humble obedience led him to death. But not just any kind of death, the most shameful and brutal death that you can imagine, death on a Roman cross. And on that cross, the glorious Christ took on our shame and took on the wrath that we deserve so that we who believe in him may be forgiven. And here's what Paul wants us to see here. Friends, if the king of the universe willingly humbled himself in this way, how much more should his people willingly humble themselves and lay down their lives before others? Now, here's what that means practically. Think about this in a few situations in your own life. The next time someone offends you and you're tempted to retaliate, remember Christ who was scorned by the ones he came to save. The next time you think, what's the most I can get out of this relationship? Remember Christ who tirelessly served those who could give nothing back in return, even his enemies. The next time you're tempted to look down on that certain group of people because they think differently than you or look differently than you or whatever it is, remember Christ who gave himself for all, male, female, Jew, Greek, young, old, rich, poor, strong, weak, religious, irreligious. The next time that coworker frustrates you, remember how patient Christ was with his thick-headed and slow-to-learn disciples. I think of many of you right now in our church who are serving on the front lines in the midst of this crisis. You're serving the elderly, those who are, are, are vulnerable. You're serving in hospitals and doctor's offices. And think about what a beautiful picture that is of the humility of Christ to put yourself in harm's way to serve others. That's what Christ did for us. Husbands and wives, the next time you want to put your own interests before the well-being of your spouse, remember Christ who laid down his life, gave himself up for his bride, the church. Parents who are stuck in isolation with the kids, right? The next time you're tempted to 
you know, they start getting on your nerves and you just oh, are so frustrated. Just remember Christ who was way busier than you are and who was most of the time way more exhausted than you are, but took time to kneel down and embrace children and look them in the face and play with them and love them even in the midst of a culture that despised them. Kids, if you're watching this, the next time you're tempted to disobey mom and dad because you don't know why they're telling you what they're telling you, just remember Jesus who was perfectly obedient to the Father, not just when it was easy, but even when it was difficult. Extroverts, next time you think, man, I just can't take this isolation anymore. I need to get out of the house. I need to be around other people. Remember Christ, who was willingly abandoned and isolated by His friends and forsaken by the Father for our salvation. Introverts, like me, next time you think, Man, get all these people away from me. Remember Christ who willingly and constantly exhausted himself for the sake of needy people. See, all of our situations, we have the resource to live humbly in, in Christ our Savior. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you and I want the fruit of humility, we must be rooted in the source, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to number three. So we've seen the fruit of humility, the root of Christ. And then thirdly, we see the result of exaltation. Look at verse nine. Says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse 9, Paul tells us that because Christ obeyed the Father and humbled Himself, what did the Father do? The Father exalted Him. His humiliation led to His exaltation. And first we see this in the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus laid down His life on the cross, but He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death, reigning victorious over them. So God exalted Christ in that way. But then again, second, we see in his ascension into heaven where he is presently enthroned in glory and reigning as the name above all names. The Father has exalted him. Then verses 10 and 11 tell us there's coming a future day as well. A day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question for us is, what will that day look like for us? And there's, there's only two responses to this. Either we will humble, humble ourselves today and be exalted with Christ on that final day. Right? As, we've, as we've seen already in Philippians 1.6, He'll bring that work He began in us to completion. Or as 1 John 3.2 says, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And friends, what a, a day of joy and glory that will be. See, that's, that's a promise that awaits those who humbly embrace Christ by faith, then walk in humble faith with Christ as our example. Or we will exalt ourselves today, and if that happens, we'll be humiliated by Christ on that final day. Those are the only two options and to quote Jesus, who also uses the tree and fruit illustration in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit 
is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, eternal judgment is what awaits those who pridefully deny Christ and walk in selfish ambition and vain conceit. They will, yes, they will recognize Him as Lord on that day, but it will be too late. Friends, as we come to the end of this passage, may we humble ourselves before Jesus on that day, rooted in the person and work of Christ, considering the glory of Jesus and the good of others far superior to our own selfish ambition, knowing that our joyful humility will one day lead to our exaltation. Let's pray together. Father, your word shows us here um, that the Christian life is one of paradox. Uh, if, we, if we want to be first, we must be last. If we want to be strong in you, we must become weak. If we want to be rich, we must become poor in spirit. If we want joy, we must mourn over our sin. And God, if we want to be exalted with you, we must humble ourselves. And God, we know this is strange to the world around us. This is contrary to the, the selfish desires of our hearts, but it's at the heart of the gospel. So we pray, God, that you would help us by your grace to bear the fruit of humility, not by looking inward to our own strength, but by being rooted in Christ, our humble Savior and example. And Father, we pray all of these things by your grace and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.